Here at Making Movies is Hard, we want to express our support for the writer strike. We encourage our filmmaker comrades to look into how best they can be allies for the good fight. Please go to WGACONTRACT2023.org to support the cause. You know, making movies is hard. Making movies is hard. Welcome. This is the podcast about the struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I'm Mark Purcell, the founding host of the podcast, and I'm a sci-fi horror filmmaker, and my first feature film, The Alternate, is out now on digital, DVD, and Tubi. I'm Liz Manischel. I'm a writer, director, producer who has made two features, Bread and Butter and Speed of Life, and I'm currently working on my third, Best Friends Forever. I do sales, and I'm a distribution consultant, and I used to manage Sundance's creative distribution initiative. On this Thursday bonus episode, we're going to play the interview from episode 312 from March 2021 with Sana Sony, who was at 1091, but who is now the director of sales and distribution at Giant Pictures. Congratulations. I thought this was a good match for Mia since they both work in distribution, although one is a freelancer and one works for a larger company. I feel like this is a good, be interesting kind of mix to hear like the two different perspectives. After that, we play another round of You're the Expert. But first, don't forget to check out our Patreon page. Go to www.patreon.com slash podcast. This is the way the show continues to thrive and to live and to grow. You know, if you sign up for a $1.99 a month, you'll get access to all the back catalog episodes, which right now is $350. But when we hit $450, it'll be $400 episodes that'll be behind the paywall so you know if you want to hear all our antics from over the years including all the timothy plain episodes which was the original co-host that's the way to do it but without any further bibble babble here's our throwback interview with sana sony Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. So we're going to start with our five questions real fast. First off, give us the elevator pitch for your film, The Myth of Control. Her series, her web series. Series. Sorry. Oh, my God. <laughs> Strikes against me. <laughs> it is a seven episode uh, by 10 minutes web series, completely remotely shot, put together at the start of the pandemic, about six interconnected in individuals who are also living through a pandemic, uh, not an anthology, because there is a lot of underlying uh, interconnectedness of, through it all in the story. But uh, each episode leans slightly towards more of a different genre. Um, and it is so exciting to have it out in the world soon. Uh, how many days did you shoot it? it? Took about 23 days. But considering, you know, it was like, two days here, three days there, clean off the equipment, send it to somewhere else help them set it up, <laughs> have them do it. What was the rough budget? So this, is it okay if I don't share that? Sure. <laughs> very, very low, basically. <laughs> very Under low. Under $100 million. Very south of that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was purely just like us, you know, just, just uh, my co-producer and I, just putting in whatever we could. Um, and getting lots and lots of favors. And we were lucky to be in a position where lots of people weren't doing anything at the start of the pandemic. So they, we were so excited to have so much talent and they were so happy to, to be working. Yeah. Um, how long did you spend working on it from the inception of the idea until its release? 
Well, it's not released yet, so still now. Yeah, so ongoing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, on the 31st, it'll have been a year. I didn't realize it would take so long to see something through, but I, you know, it's because I haven't done filmmaking in a long time. Um, you you can't answer this already, but how big was your crew? We are now 77 people across oh. 26 cities eight countries and uh they are they come from all sorts of backgrounds and it all sorts of levels uh which is a huge reason why we did it that way as well because it was all about the democracy of, of having people who really knew what they were doing they've been veterans in the business for decades and students who just come out of like film school or a different school who got to do whatever it is that they wanted to do on a, on a project so that part is really important to us and compared to all the other projects, uh, filmmaking projects you've made, how difficult was this one? It's so hard to compare because it was so different because it was 100% remote. So it was it was extremely um, uh, educational because there were two of us at the top working everything out. Um, but also I have to mention that the last time I'd really done any real production had been a good eight years before that. And I hadn't been, you know, at the helm of it or producing it by any means. So it was very, very different if that answers your question. Yeah. Well, let's go back a little bit, right? So you do work in distribution right now, but you are an indie storyteller. So I guess I'm curious, um, what is your history in being an artist? So I... When I went from Eastern Europe to LA to go study at UCLA, I just wanted to do movies. I just wanted to be involved. So of course I got involved in every which way possible. And of course with my natural leanings would lean more towards organizing things. That's kind of who I am. So I would head up film clubs. I helped with producing. I helped gather people. That was one of my talents is finding really talented people around campus and bringing them together uh, for projects and uh, producing some grad students' thesis films, including, <laughs> I didn't produce this one, but I worked on uh, Anna Lily uh, Amirpour's uh, short film. Like, it was, it was so fun. I was just wrangling the extras. But um, the, that's kind of where I went. And then I realized, okay, I want to do more of a business side of things. I want to do the biz side of showbiz. So I started to, you know, look for work in that field and then um, continue to do that. And then uh, went to London, continue to do that more because as much as I'd love production, I realized it wasn't really for me. Uh, I hated the early mornings. <laughs> I found myself usually not being able to be of much use on set minus the, the task that I'd been assigned and it just didn't come naturally. So I was like, okay, I'll stick with the business side. Um, but decided last year, it was such a brave new world despite everything happening with, you know, pandemic it was like there's so much we can do here there's a new way we can reconfigure who gets let in to make things uh there's a new way we can configure how movies get distributed there's so much there's brave new world oh my god it's so exciting and partially out of that and my co-producer also coming to me saying what if we managed to shoot something remotely what, what if we could do this and i was like let's do it and it was like the best adventure but um I knew that there were most likely I wasn't going to continue with uh, production after that because I knew that last year had been such a unique year and even remote set, I wasn't much use on. <laughs> <laughs> I was, I did everything like a true producer would like before we got on set. 
or more of an executive producer would do, if that makes sense. Um, I want to hear more about what you said, this new way of distributing movies and, you know, this new frontier that we're in. Like, talk about what that is, because I want to know more. <laughs> there was so much happening. Um, I was obsessed. I had a spreadsheet of all the movies that were collapsing their theatrical windows. Um, I was in the UK, um, so this a lot of it was UK focused, but with a big US focus as well. Um, which ones were skipping their theatrical entirely, which ones were going to a premium VOD release, so it's $20 to rent, which ones were going to a normal VOD and buy release, which is five, six-ish dollars, like normal, which ones are being snatched up by streamers. So this, that, I had a spreadsheet going with that. I had all this research I was doing, which was all fascinating on how this was going to affect our business. I realized, what are we going to do with the markets not happening this year or can not happening? What, what's going to happen? And I got this crazy idea into my head of, uh, and I talked to a lot of people about it, about creating like a system, like an online market where you could attend, but I couldn't quite crack it. And to be honest, it doesn't seem like almost a year on anyone really has cracked it um, because these markets happen around a certain time, but people can still do phone calls anytime just because, you know, you don't need to have a market happening virtually to, to meet someone um, for a meeting. If you're a filmmaker or distributor or an agent that you might otherwise have done if you were attending in person, that's a completely different thing. We just can't replicate the in-person experience. So, uh, but in the meantime, I learned a lot about what that could mean um, about, and I got so excited about, the filmmakers that I knew who had exciting, good projects that weren't able to put them out how they would have wanted to put them out, what can we do there? How can we get them to distributors? How can I help bridge this gap? So I can't say that you know anything really came out of that, but I just learned tons and tons and um, really grateful for that. And that's when you were working at a UK distribution company, right? Or is this, uh, and then uh, what brought you over to the US? It was my partner's job, uh, but it was also a chance to explore, just, you know, stretch my abilities in terms of uh, entertainment and working in entertainment. Um, and that's definitely proved to be true, um, as I'm now working at 1091 Pictures, as Ulrich mentioned. And uh, that has been a wonderful experience. And I've only been there just over three months. Wait, and I realize I skipped over like a more interesting question. So hold on, um, because you're, you're talking about the markets. And it was really surprising to me when I ended up talking to international sales agents and they're like, yeah, we used to like pitch films at these parties at Cannes and Venice and like, what do we do now? And I'm just kind of like, well, you know, those parties are like what filmmakers are upset and resentful over like at you for. So it's like very interesting to me that we had this kind of reckoning of of what a market actually is. Is it a party? Or do or do, does shit really get done? And it sounds like it's both a party and where shit gets done. So I'm just curious, like, what uh, can you tell us a little bit more about your attempt to do this virtual marketplace? I spoke to uh, my mentor. I spoke to who I had done a program with under an association in England called Creative England. It was a great program for producers and executives um, from late 2019 to early 2020. We uh, yeah, and we went to Berlin together uh, at EFM, the European film market, in February last year. It was 
big hurrah, last hurrah. Um, I spoke to tons of producers. I spoke to my colleagues at Signature. I spoke to sales agents I knew. But again, I just couldn't crack it. I couldn't come up with like a way to make one online destination compelling enough to where people would like sign up. And this is coming from someone who's barely attended any markets, by the way, and who, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm relatively new to the world of international buying and selling movies. So this was something that I was just thinking, why not? Let's go for it. Let's just learn as much as possible. And I had, I just had lots of notes, but um, nothing, yeah, of course, came of it. But what did come of it was tons and tons of uh, conversations with both people that I had known before and people that I was just meeting. And those were super useful also because I was uh, getting to the States and hustled, needed to hustle to get a job. (laughs) (laughs) Turned into a networking opportunity for yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It it grew into that more as I was like, okay, let's put that aside and like continue to just network for myself because I want a job when I get to the States. (laughs) So, Talk about your role at 1091. Like, what do you do do in your day-to-day at your job? It's not going to be glamorous. I apologize. (laughs) It's looking at a lot of spreadsheets. Um, I do get to, and this is one of my favorite parts of the job, is have a really good excuse to watch the movies that I'm working on. Have a reason to watch trailers that we might be, for movies that we might be thinking of acquiring. Um, helping out with the artwork or title changes. That's something more that happened in my previous job um, in order to help it bring my expertise in sales to the acquisitions team and say, well, this would work, this would, this would not work. This kind of release date would work, that release date would not work, et cetera, it, you know, all kinds. But my day-to-day really consists of <laughs> lots of calls with the people that I am selling to. These are all of the AVOD clients that we mentioned, the advertising, ad-supported video-on-demand platforms. The biggest ones people might know of are obviously YouTube, uh, Pluto, Tubi, Roku Channel, and uh, just having tons of conversations with them, figuring out what is that, what it is that they're looking for, what they're focusing on. Because at 1091, we have, I believe, 4,500 movies. Mm. So it's quite a lot to sift through. Um, <clears throat> it's building what you call avails, which is like a list of, it can be up to a, a few hundred movies that you send off to these partners, these um, AVOD platforms and channels and tell them, this is what we got for you. Would you like to take it? It's curating that list to make it interesting for them. It's um, when they have selected out of those hundreds or however many titles, it's ensuring that these movies get delivered and working with our team. It's then also making sure that they're reporting on time and paying on time and and, um, tracking how that's going against budget. So that's what I mean when I say it's not really exciting or glamorous. (laughs) So interesting, though. I just want to talk about distribution all the time. Um, A lot of people thought of Avod as like this uh, great hope for distribution, right? Because transactional EST has been declining for years and years and years. Um, And then SVOD leaves a lot of filmmakers, sorry, subscription VOD leaves a lot of filmmakers on the table, like the Netflix and the Hulu. Not a lot of people can get those deals or pay TV deals or premium cable deals. But a lot of people can get to Tubi and a lot of people can get to Roku channel. Are you, do you feel like you're part of like a hopeful um, window of distribution? Yes, I am 
even though up until now, even a little bit now, it's kind of looked down upon AVOD because it's free, right? And I think up until um, even like last year, and unfortunately, I got to say, this is more from my UK perspective. We have a few, a little less, uh, a fewer bunch of AVODs out there. It really was movies that had had their day. Um, if they're well known, if, if if you've heard of these movies, they've had their day on all the other windows that we mentioned: theatrical, DVD, pay TV, SVOD. And so now, the only way to really squeeze money out of it is just to put on AVOD. Or it was movies that you honestly would never have heard of, as like a general person, you know, of the public, you would never have heard of these movies. So. I don't think it was a very glamorous or um, elite place to put your movie. Everyone wanted their movies on Netflix or, or Hulu or Amazon, but it is so changing. I think that that is changing when you see the kinds of revenues that are coming in, when you see the, the ridiculous figures of Roku growing its subscriber base, um, you know, growing year on year, beating their targets, it's like ridiculous to see. And of course, a lot of this is spurred on by the pandemic. Um, <clears throat> since a lot of people were inside, a lot of people wanted to conserve their money and not be throwing it around subscriptions. And uh, a lot of stuff being out there. Um, one other thing is they started to learn about the, the importance of buying up rights to old nostalgic TV that is comfort viewing. Another is... Um, when the studios that own them, for example, Fox owns Tubi or Pluto is owned by CBS, Viacom CBS, when they learned that these AVOD platforms were really growing, they started to work with them in a more meaningful way. Hmm. If you remember a few weeks ago, it was announced that um, the new uh, CBS shows, uh, Equalizer and Clarice were going to have their pilot episodes aired both on TV normally and on Pluto, which was owned, you know, and these little kinds of pieces of synergy that show you, okay, we're, we're, we're ramping up. This is, this is really happening. And how the last bit, which I hope is like the most hopeful is that there is money there. If, if there's money there for distributors, then there's money there for filmmakers because it's going to flow down the line. So that part is one of the most exciting things because it's like a brave new world of like ways to, get your movie out there and make money on it. So you're talking about like, you know, presenting 200 or so movies to um, some of these AVOD um, companies. Um, out of that- On a monthly how... or quarterly basis, by the way. Okay, okay. But out of those, like how many will they take? And then like, do you have any, can you give us any rough figures of like what they're paying per movie in order to have them on their services? Uh, how many they take is so up to the each platform. Um, that is so different based on what they're looking for, um, how much capacity they have on their servers. If we happen to, to offer up titles that they were interested in to begin with, um, how much they're ramping up on acquiring new things. And secondly, um, I'm not quite sure this is how everyone works, but um, they don't necessarily, they don't pay for these. We just get a cut of the revenue. Uh -huh. So that's, that's something that you get once a movie has been up on there and it's made money off of the ads that are playing against it. And then we get a cut of that. And 
just to follow up on that, like, do you have any idea of like how much one movie can generate, you know, from an AVOD, uh, you know, over like six months, or is that data not really available? So the data is not really available for so many reasons. The market is so new. It's so, and this is something I have to contend with every day when we are looking at new t- new movies that might be coming in, and we wonder how much can we make in this window and that window and this window, and it's something that just it's just ugh, it, it it's so, it keeps changing. It depends so hard, so much on what the movie is. It depends so much on who takes it. it in um, my previous job, I worked on the transactional side. So <clears throat> that meant when a movie came out on home entertainment, it was instantly available, contractually so, on all of the places where a movie is available to buy or rent. Google Play, iTunes, Amazon, Microsoft, you know, amongst a host of others. With that, you had like a homogenous place you could just go to and say, well, this kind of movie did really well on iTunes, but it didn't do well on Amazon. So you had day one for all these movies and you had a clear path that they took. Um, but with AVOD, it's, it's not like that. It's, it's uh, you might have something live here. You may not have it live there. It, um, it, 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 Maybe we acquired it for a certain platform, but <clears throat> suddenly that platform's gone out of business or they're no longer interested. So it just keeps changing. Um, but really, I think the sky's the limit on what a movie could make in six months or a year. I think it's only going to grow. Obviously, the more well-known it is, the more bigger names it has in it, or the more appealing the poster. You'll see a lot of raunchy, sexy <laughs> pieces of artwork on these because they catch the eye um, for distributors who don't have huge marketing spends, who don't put their movies out in theaters. A lot of times you just have to rely on a very catchy title, a face that people recognize in the poster or art that people can just gravitate towards. And like, I know what that is. That looks like a horror. I'm in the mood for a horror. I'm going to go for that. So uh, it, it depends on a lot, a lot of things, but it's, it's quite high. There's, there's, um, in the hundreds of thousands, but how much of that makes its way back to the filmmaker? Yeah. And I'm, I'm talking I'm saying like hundreds of thousands for multiple titles. Um, I, I wanted to shout out to Vampire Dog, which uh, sold me with its poster one night. Um, but <laughs> I want to get back to, you know, very rarely do I meet uh, storytellers who also are in distribution and in um I don't know what for-profit distribution, right? And it sounds like you have a lot of enthusiasm for the support distributors are giving filmmakers. And um, I would say a lot of filmmakers uh, resent (laughs) distributors and think that they're always lying to them or manipulating uh, the truth in some way. And there seems to be a, a blockade between distributors and filmmakers. So I've wondered if you could speak to... From your point of view, does it seem like distributors are exploiting films in the best way? Not always, for sure. And I think that um, we've seen this across the community of filmmakers who is is vocal and is um, hopefully quite supportive of each other. But in many ways, you know, we have seen that they are supportive of each other and they share this information. Um um, that said, a lot of filmmakers sadly do work in a vacuum, so they do get exploited. So no, I can't speak to everyone. I haven't, you know, obviously haven't worked with everyone or for too many distributors, but yes, I, I know that there are unethical practices, cooking books and 
Um, and um, yeah, it's not fair to the filmmaker. Uh, but I am so glad to say that with 1091, we, we've been so transparent and looking at what filmmakers say about us, it, it seems to be quite, you know, it's, it's definitely true that they're, they're having a good, really good, um, good result out of working with us. And one thing that made me so, so proud was to learn about, because, you know, again, I'm, I'm a little bit new and, uh, some of these things have been happening in the background for a while since before I joined and they're just launching now is new systems in place that are going to be extremely transparent and detailed in the analytics of how your film, if it's distributed by us, is getting viewed. Um, so how many views you're getting, how many minutes people are sitting down to watch your movie on what platforms and, you know, really beautiful graphs and infographics on all of that data, which I find so exciting because it's done really to help filmmakers. It's really done to, to support them. It's done in the name of absolute honesty and transparency. And obviously it makes business sense. The more open and, and uh, helpful we are, the more movies will come our way also. So it is that part has made me so very, very proud because having spoken to a lot of other people in distribution, I know that's not really the case. It's just like, get in, make your money, do what you got to do, piss off the filmmaker, just, but just make your money. <laughs> uh, and I, unfortunately, that's, it's not always going to be, you know, sunshine and rainbows. Uh, there, there's going to be a lot of negotiation, I'm sure. But once again, unfortunately, that's on the acquisition side. And I can't really comment on that because I'm not really in the acquisitions teams. So I'm, I'm really curious, like from a sales perspective, like what kind of movies are you excited to see, like come, come into your library that you get to sell? Like what kind of movies are making your job easier to, to land deals with these different subscription services? A lot of it comes down to just really obvious things. Like, like I said, oh, it's a really obvious horror movie. People want to see that. It's got vampires in it. Maybe vampires are hot right now. Or dogs that are vampires. Yeah, I, I need to know what this movie is. I mean, as it's a dog called Vampire lover. Dog and Norm MacDonald voices a vampire dog. Oh my God, I can't wait to Google this. <laughs> uh, I'm excited when it's a movie that will inspire change. We had a one uh, just recently called A Woman's Work about NFL cheerleaders who are who are uh, not treated the way you would have thought they're being treated in the NFL. And I believe in the message of that. And when I see that these movies do well, it may, you know, it obviously reinforces your faith <laughs> in the world. Um, so things that are both meaningful and I try to keep my own interests out of it as much as possible because those are just my interests and there's millions of people out there with other interests, both things that are meaningful, things that are quality or tell a good story, of course, things that are representative of the world around us and things that are commercial. And I realized how hard it is to kind of hit enough of these points. Mm -hmm. So uh, yeah, sorry, your question was. Yeah, like what, yeah, what gets you excited and what makes it easier for you to, to, to seal a deal, to like sell, sell, you know, a block of movies or something? What, um, what makes it easier for me, it just depends so much on what the people are looking for, you know. Mm. So a certain platform does really well with a certain genre. So that's exciting. I can be like, oh, we have a whole new block of movies available that fit perfectly within that genre. So I can, mm. can send that to you. Um, but personally, as I see movies coming in that we're acquiring and putting out, 
it's it's things that speak of qualities. It's the things that are hard hitting documentaries. It's uh, it's good stories. Um, with well, obviously, I love good cast as well. And uh, we're hopefully looking to acquire more narrative scripted films as well. And those are also very much my jam. So uh, those get me excited. Well, I'm glad that you didn't say cast as your very first thing, which is what I was expecting you to say. And you actually snuck it in at the very end, which was really cool. So that's that's encouraging, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to... Um, have to highlight the things that about certain titles that I may not enjoy for the sake of a job, but that's just kind of what comes with work, right? You, if I could, I'd, I'd select only movies that I'd like to work on, but that's just not necessarily how it works. <laughs> and you finished this web series. It hasn't been released yet, but you know so much about distribution. Can you talk a little bit about how your expertise is informing your own work? Yes, I... Very good question because I, a big reason I wanted to also get involved is because I found myself being helpful to a lot of independent filmmakers. They had a lot of questions and they felt really cut off from what it is that makes their project exciting for a distributor. And I had a glimpse into what that was. So I thought, yes, definitely, this is something I can apply to my own project. Um, so I know, for example, I had seen. AVOD's coming up in my previous job. I knew that this was a huge opportunity. I knew that there were so many new channels, new apps, new platforms popping up and that they all needed content. I knew that I was, that we were soon going to be in a bit of a, uh, a drought of, of new content. And I was hoping to sneak in there with our project and say, look, we got something. Um, and I knew how to be realistic to a point. I knew that for such a tiny project with such a tiny budget, with some recognizable faces, but nothing so quite, you know, quite big. Uh, we had to be realistic and we knew that we weren't necessarily gonna get an MG. So I'm not looking forward to, I'm not counting on that coming in. I'm not counting on somebody paying us money. I know how the market works and I know that most likely, and we have spoken to some people about this, they will take it, they will put it up on their platform and any money that they make, they'll kind of split the shares with us. Um, so this is the kind of stuff that I thought I could bring to it. Plus, uh, all the research I was doing last year about how the world was changing. That was very exciting. Uh, seeing how things like Quibi were working or not working, <laughs> which, um, which, you know, it, it's complicated. Um, <laughs> it, so yeah, uh, I'm, I'm sure I have more to add here in terms of like what I could bring to it. Yeah. And I knew... I'd like to think that I had a good understanding of what to do with the art, what to do with the title, how to write a, or how to help shape a synopsis that would be eye-catching or eye-catching enough. Um, what kind of cast members to go for as opposed to others because they would help us get that sale. So these kinds of things um, I was so grateful to be able to bring to the project. Um. Do you feel like there is a drought of uh, films from the pandemic? Because I had that assumption as well, and a lot of people were talking about that. But then, you know, going, I'm, I'm submitting um, my first feature to film festivals right now, 
it does not seem like there's a drought. It seems like, in fact, that film, f- film festivals are being even more picky than they are because they have m- more things or they're like, oh, it's it's a virtual thing only or we only have so many slots so we have to really be like tough on like what we pick like, you know, th- for this year. And so I also want, from your perspective, I'm, I'm curious, like, are you seeing a lack of movies or is it still just chugging along as it normally would? It really depends on what kind of business you're in. If you're Apple or Amazon, you have the money to shell out for good projects um, that might be popping at Sundance or Tribeca. You have the ability to plunk that down. You're like, we want the rights. I think for a lot of the other distributors, it's a lot harder. who don't really have that kind of money to pay up for the rights of these kinds of movies. They might be getting uh, movies that are medium or lower in terms of quality. And that's not any sort of judgment on the movies themselves. It's more of just looking at the market as a whole and seeing um, what people are willing to pay for, uh, both what distributors are willing to pay for and what viewers, once the movie is out, is are willing to pay for. So I, I have yet to really get a full understanding uh, around the business of if there really is a drought or not. Um, it certainly makes it, feel like there isn't when people like Sky Movies in the UK or Netflix say, we got a new movie every week. Don't worry about us. Um, But I have seen uh, certain people nervous about not having enough happening in Q3 this year. Um, if, if, uh, If all the movies that have been made towards the end of 2019, early 2020 got snatched up and have come out now, either last year or this year. And we're also a little bit worried about what consumer habits are gonna be like going into the summer and out of that. If there's a vaccine, if, uh, if there's uh, a, a bit of an opening up of the world, does that mean that people are just gonna like not be at home to watch movies anymore? There's <laughs> so much to think about and it's so hard to predict. I just wanted to weigh in from my perspective as a distribution consultant, um, and it's that, and maybe this is a very cynical perspective, but I represent what I call middle class filmmakers. So filmmakers who like wouldn't be on like, you know, they wouldn't get like an originals deal <laughs> with Apple or Netflix and and would be usually working with smaller distributors. Um And I just think it's never like any opportunity never trickles down to us. And I just like to say that because I think a lot of us were like content drought. This is our chance. And then it's like, no, 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 no. It it, it probably um, and it sounds like it's reinforced from what you're saying. um, It probably will impact those higher profile platforms and films because then less tentpole films are being made, less higher budget films are being made because of the moratorium. But nothing ever benefits a micro budget filmmaker. So, and like, I do agree with what Ulrich is saying. I'm hearing that festivals, or my perspective is that festivals are being inundated with content. Well, right one now. thing I'd like to bring up is like when you say a filmmaker, whoever they are, like, you know, you said the middle class filmmaker who deserves to have their film seen and deserves yeah. to be paid for what they for what they worked on, what they poured their heart and soul into. The question really is like, you know, what does success mean to them? Yeah. Um, even before the pandemic, would they have had a low shot at 
getting a deal with a distributor where they are able to get an upfront MG or an upfront payment. Oh, none of us ever get MGs. We would never expect that. (laughs) Or like, like, it's my job to tell them not to expect that, actually. Or if you like, you know, you win the lottery if you get any kind of MG, you know, it's like, it's like you basically have exceeded any kind of expectation. (laughs) This is kind of what I've seen over the last few years that this happens more and more. And I wish I understood more about the, the full picture of things, you know, over how decades, how it's come along. Uh, to be able to to comment on that but it's it's that is so is sad but it kind of shows you it's like it's like capitalism it shows you supply and demand um but it's very very interesting to hear that like festivals are just completely filled up and they have enough stuff i guess one thing to consider is even if they're filled up are they filled up with the kinds of movies that a distributor would want um and if a distributor does want them should they want them is this something that's going to benefit everyone because not not every distributor is, is made equal. Not every deal that a filmmaker does with a distributor is equal. And uh, maybe you're better off not doing that deal or doing it with someone else. So there's a, I, I there, I live in a world of limited choices. (laughs) And so it's all about totally what you're saying, like picking the best opportunity for you, but it's really good to know that and I'm learning firsthand. I have a filmmaker who we're negotiating with 1091 right now, and we're actually redlining the agreement right now. And I'm learning firsthand, like how amenable y'all are, and it's really um, quite an. And I'm, by the way, renewing my film with 1091 this week because The Orchard released my film. So I'm not. This is not an overall promotional show for 1091 because I'm sure there are flaws in your system. Um, but I am seeing some some heat being drawn to that to your company, and I and I appreciate that in a good way. You're putting forth. <laughs> yes, good heat momentum <laughs> no i i see it too i see it too and um having you mention us obviously at the top because of the, the number and your cheat sheet as well under dear producer was just like so very very cool um uh, just getting the word out on ourselves as we rebuild the brand as well just a little bit because it's only been about just under two years since we broke off from the orchard to be our own thing um yeah it's very exciting <laughs> I'm, I'm so glad. I am very glad. And I'd love to hear more about this movie. <laughs> oh, red- we'll talk offline. Yeah. <laughs> Arc two. Do you have another question? Well, yeah. I mean, I'm just like, it just it just sounds like from what you're saying that the genre doesn't necessarily matter that much in, in your world of sales because the, there's so many different needs from the different, you know, um, you know, companies that there's like a company that wants dramas. There's a company that wants horror. There's a company that wants sci-fi or comedy or whatever so it doesn't feel like focusing on one genre is necessarily important for filmmakers it's more important just to make a good movie is that is that true or are there certain genres that are more lucrative than others in your mind uh it it, it's it it kind of goes up and down which really is unfair right you all have heard about the amazon thing of not taking shorts and docs uh that makes it difficult to acquire new docs very sadly because that's you know yeah by the way you also just rejected an amazing documentary because, because oh, it's an yes. oh <laughs> okay tell me more about that as well and hey i i get to step away from all of that and say yeah it's not me because i'm not in that position this is a really good movie but yeah sorry i just wanted to give you because i felt like i was too nice to you a second ago so now i had to give you a little ribbing but please go on please do what you want um it, it, um, 
genre doesn't matter as much as like commercial viability and how good it is or how good it looks, uh, I guess, matter. And the, the interest in genres will wax and wane, depending on what it is, depending on the year, depending on the time of year. Uh, people are always in the mood for holiday, to acquire holiday movies. <laughs> Not my interest, but it's a fact. Uh, horrors obviously also do very well all the time, but it just depends so much on what a distributor has carved out a niche for, for themselves. So in the last year or so, I think we've gotten really well known on our, about our docs, but um, that, that doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, it'll be the same going forward. And uh, I think there's very, I think kids or family stuff. I'm not quite sure if there just hasn't been enough out in the world for us to acquire, but there hasn't been much of that. Um, so it keeps changing, <laughs> definitely. And it's a big team, the acquisitions team. So they have a lot to work on on themselves. They're not only looking to acquire new movies, they're looking to, you know, um, keep up uh, our relationships with the people who do provide us with movies on a regular basis and provide them with the accurate reporting, provide them with uh, numbers on how their movies are doing. So it's, so it's, it's, it's a lot of work there too. So hopefully that answers your question. Can we um, do an exercise really quickly? Can we all form the most ideal film that would have a successful distribution and can it be, can we give the caveat that it hasn't played Sundance or TIFF or Toronto? It's just a straight to distribution, non-festival film. Could there be a world where you can craft the perfect film without name cast and without festival prestige that you think could be a successful title? You could speak of it as, I know you don't want to talk about acquisitions and um, because that's a whole different kettle of fish, but for Avod, is there a world where there would be a slam dunk title that would not have cast and would not have festival prestige? Anything that really speaks to a niche. Yeah. Uh, at the moment, it seems that African-American cinema or black movies, black cinema is, is really, really, really popular. And that's, that's so good to have that kind of representation. Um, so for example, that's a quick answer, but if you wanted to build a full exercise, you know, we can, we can get into that. <laughs> I like the quick answer though. Um, anything that, 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 uh, works off of the zeitgeist, um, if a certain thing is really popular right now, uh, obviously the Royals in the UK are really popular right now. So, uh, a lot of movies in our catalog might be doing well, you know, have to take a few days to look at the numbers when they come in, but those kinds of documentaries that we have about royals and, and princes and princesses uh, probably having a big bump. So huh. it's it's uh, it, it works off of zeitgeist a lot and a, a lot of like piggybacking off of other big marketing. Liz, do you think we should go to our final five oh, questions, yeah. or do you have a do you have a so last luxurious. big question? Usually we have to end by two, and we gave ourselves a two fifteen. So I've been like, oh, let's just be breezy. <laughs> no, I have no more questions. Sorry, final questions are fine. Um, all right, so I'll go first. Um, what's the first film you ever made, and how do you feel about it now? It was a short film. I had gone to the New York Film Academy summer camp in London when I was 16, and it was a silent five-minute film. Uh, how I feel about it is eternally grateful because it and that week of filmmaking camp got me into movies forever. <laughs> and I... I I also loved how freeing it was to just express yourself and sit in a classroom afterwards and talk movies, not 
something school related. Uh, so I feel about it. <laughs> I'm sure I'd cringe a lot if I saw it now, <laughs> but, but I'm proud to have done it. What's the best filmmaking advice you've ever received? So define what side of filmmaking. <laughs> like, Oh, what's no, I, any, any filmmaking advice from either side of filmmaking, any advice that relates to the industry? Oh, this is one that everyone's heard and I hate to have to like repeat it. But like, if you're gonna be a full on straight up independent, do it yourself filmmaker, uh, whether that's writing, directing, producing, the answer of like, make sure there's nothing else you could be, nothing else you should be doing or could be doing. And if there really is nothing else you could be doing and this is it, then go for it. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah. It, it's it's not it's it's not what I like to have to say, but it we've all seen how difficult it is, and this is a big reason why I'm not a filmmaker, independent filmmaker, you know. It, and, and I don't know if I really consider myself an artist either because I haven't done anything in a long time. Um, but eventually, I'd love to executive produce, you know, down the line, not on set. I, I really, I really, this is a little off of what we normally do, but I really want to speak to what you just said, because I, I used to hear that a lot growing up, you know, um, coming up as a person on sets, like talking to like people who I respected and, you know, asking for advice. And then some people would be like, oh, yeah, well, you know, my advice to you is to find something else that makes more money. Or my advice to you is to, yeah, like, whatever, don't be a filmmaker because it's too hard. And I'm like in my fifties and I want to quit or whatever, or like not quit. I wish I did something else or whatever the heck it is. And, um, I feel like we sh should be reframing that as, um, you know, filmmakers because like it's hard and it's something that you have to be really committed to. But I think if you don't, if you do it as like, like you can figure out a way to do it and, and make it happen and make it work, right? Like Liz and I both have day jobs that we do as well as make our films, you know? And I think like setting your expectations into what it means to be an independent filmmaker, I think is probably like a better way to like structure, like to answer that question or think about that, that response, because it's like, yeah, if you, cause we could all do other things. Like, you know, we could all go off and be in other industries and be making more money doing all different kinds of things, but we're here because we love to be here and it doesn't really matter, you know? Um, but like, I don't know. Well, I agree about uh, setting your expectations, but, but I guess what I meant by like, there's literally nothing else you can do in the way that like, you are a filmmaker, you are a writer. And if you were doing anything else, it would almost physically hurt you. That's kind of what I mean. Like if you have so much, you have something in you, you got to get it out as a filmmaker or a storyteller. I respect that because I don't personally have stories that I want to get out. Maybe minus one, but we don't, you know, it's uh, being realistic is paramount, as you said, knowing that if you're going to do it, it's going to be really hard. If you're okay with that, dive right in. Right, 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 right. Sorry to sidetrack there. Um. <laughs> you're absolutely right. <laughs> um, do you have a goal as a filmmaker? No, I think a lot of us... And you guys tell me, since you are actual filmmakers, you know, day by day, you, you know, uh, first you got to get it done and get it out. Then you can kind of think of your next step. Sometimes you, I don't necessarily don't have specific goals. I just have seen movies get made and have been like, oh, I'll be a part of that. But I don't quite know uh, 
what that would mean exactly in terms of like what the goals would be. Other than, other than, you know, get involved in stories that I really believe in. <laughs> that is the most important thing. Um, I wanted to say this before, but, I, uh, but I'll just say it now. Um, I don't like being on set either. And I just want to say, I think there is a desire. Not that I, I'm always trying to convince people to direct it to like come into the world of, of, of producing and directing. Um, just want to say, uh, come to the dark side, Sana. I mean, come, come to us. Call yourself an artist and make some more content. And that's all. That's what I wanted to say. Uh, but I'll get to our next question unless you wanted to respond to that. Um, no, no, I, I, I absolutely love that. And I hated to see the little bit of regret or, or, or sadness in your face when I said that. I don't know if I'll return to making anything. <laughs> um, it, it, because because I, I think that, you know, my, my strength lies in the business side, you know. Um, and, and But what's exciting about that is what I can take out of that and put into the art of it mm -hmm. that's so exciting and it was exhilarating to this extremely talented team we had on the web series to shape a story with them to to do the casting to to um, come up with the creative angles of it it was it was beautiful but uh i guess i'm a wuss unlike yeah. the people who have d d dove right in I'm, I don't know if I can make it work. You can. You will. That's fine. Don't worry. We'll work, at, we'll work on it later. But like, That's why I'm copping out and getting a day job. <laughs> um, and also, you probably have, like, an apartment, you know. And like, yeah, you know, life and, you know, life. You know, and things you've got to nice. pay for. I'd love that. Um, uh, considering that, if you could go back in time, what's the piece of advice you would give yourself? Oh my God, as you can tell, I, I um, speak up and, and I'm not afraid of using my voice, but I wish I'd done it more, um, especially as a woman I, as, and a woman of color. I wish I had just had more faith in myself to say, this is what I believe, even, even if it didn't actually amount to a lot, just speak up. I wish I had done that more um, in everything, in the social situations, most importantly in work situations if it comes to, to, to pay, if it comes to something you really believe, like, no, I really don't think this movie is worth our time, whatever it is. <laughs> uh, uh, just, just, just to have that faith. And I am grateful for the team at Signature for drawing out that voice, <laughs> my previous job in London, um, and so that I can use it more. Um, is making movies hard? Yes. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> it's like that expression of like having to force one into existence. <laughs> you've, you've all heard that too. Well, no, I, is it? No, I think I have. I'm like laughing because I'm thinking about childbirth. Um, what, please reframe it. Tell us what do you mean by that? Oh, uh, of like everything that can go wrong will go wrong. And it's a constant circus. Again, I am speaking about physical sets that I've been on years ago. But even even being on a short film set was scary. It was like this constant. I know lots of people thrive in that. And I'm jealous of when there's they're putting out fires and that's when they're on. They're almost on fire. But I, I don't think it worked so well for me. <laughs> But uh, it is hard. And this is why I admire filmmakers. And when I see so many movies that get made, that, you know, they're being selected at festivals that come across our desk at work, I am in awe that people have seen it through. As you said, it feels like childbirth, um, giving birth to a, a, a entity which did not exist before. 
and it's remarkable and beautiful. And that's a big reason why I work in this business. Um, that was wonderful. Thank you for being on this show. How can people support you as an artist? And, um, and how can they follow you as an individual uh, inclusive of being an artist? What about the web series? Can they, can they do something for the web series? This is the hard part. Um, yes, if, if there are platforms out there that, you know, need this content, if, uh, if, if you have success with a web series and you know how, because there is no path. I'm, I'm more used to working on distribution of feature films, not on web series or TV shows. Uh, you know, follow us on Instagram, The Myth of Control. Um, we will soon, as, as soon as we've hooked up with a distributor, putting, be putting more and more word out there in terms of, of where we're available to, to watch. Um, and uh, the company that we started, my co-producer, He's already um, gone off to do another web series and a short film. And that company is called LDNO. So <laughs> that's something to support. Um, uh, and personally for me, follow me on Twitter, I guess, <laughs> LAX to LHR. Is there a trailer for the, the web series, the TV show yet? Or is it, um, is it not done? It's under construction. But the, the oh, cool. web series itself is completely ready. Well, this has been Yay. great. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This is so much fun. Do you love making movies as hard and you want to listen to more episodes? Jump over to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash MMIH and you can listen to the entire back catalog of episodes for just $1.99 a month. That's an additional 300 episodes that aren't on iTunes that you can listen to whenever you please. But without any more blibber blabber. Back to the show. Okay, Liz, if Sanaa was on the show today, what is the one question you'd ask her? Oh, man. I mean, I would just verify that it still sucks for all of us in independent filmmaking <laughs> it that there's no money. <laughs> I remember this interview. I remember she talked a little about, about AVOD. And I do hear some success stories about AVOD. But I would want to ask her specifically what titles succeed on AVOD. And just real quick note, it's so funny that you picked this show because I've been meaning to text you for weeks and I've forgotten to. But Sana texted me and she's like, where's my episode? I was I wanted to send it to someone. And I was like, oh, you're in the vault. But I can ask Ulrich if we could bring you out of the vault. And she's like, no, don't worry about it. But you did it. You didn't even know. And you did it. Boom. Yeah. And I mean, you know, she can privately share the episode with whoever she wants. We just to give her yeah. the link. So she it doesn't it doesn't mean that it can't be shared with people. It just means that you can't discover it on your own, you know, yeah. but here's even better. You get to hear it live on the show out in the world and she can share it away without any concern or just tell people to look it up and it's there. What would you ask her? Yeah. Yeah. I would ask about working at giant pictures and you know, what her, if her role is very similar to at 1091 or like what she's doing there and how the companies differ. And I would love to know like, if their approaches are similar, the same, like, are completely different, and like what she's hoping to do at Giant Pictures in this new role. I think that's probably what I would talk about. All right. Yes, I agree. <laughs> now it's time for our You're the Expert question of the week. What is You're the Expert or You're the Expert? You're the Expert is a segment hand spun by our producer, Eric Toms. He has decided that we are experts and we have decided not to argue with him about this point. And so he sends us a question either from his mind or from an amazing listener's email or message or tweet or Instagram. And this week we have a question from Jay Rochelle. 
Rochelle 01. And J. Rochelle 01 says, Hi, MMIH. I'm a writer living in Lowell, Massachusetts, and I want to make a film. I have two questions. One, how do I meet filmmakers to collaborate with? And two, how long should I know someone before spending my time making a project with them? Thanks, and I love your show. That was really nice, J. Rochelle one. And Arik, what do you think? What, do, what would you say to J. Rochelle? Move to Boston. Just kidding. Um, <laughs> you don't have to move to Boston. I think that it's, to find people to collaborate with, it, you just have to go to where people are meeting who make movies or like kind of get in, infused with your community of filmmakers because no matter where you are in the world there is somebody else making a movie where you are that is verified and i guarantee it's true whether you know it or not i feel like look for facebook groups see if there's any lowell massachusetts facebook groups for filmmakers if there isn't one create one yourself and then people will come to you and they'll and you'll start to create your own little community of filmmakers around where you are i actually want to look up and see if there's a vallejo filmmakers group because i don't really know the Vallejo filmmakers out here, although I know there are a lot of people in Vallejo who do make movies. I know that is very true. So I would do that. I also just like, yeah, go on Craigslist, you know, in your area, like check out the gigs, check out, you know, anyone making any kind of project and just like, you know, volunteer to work on that project for free. Or if they're offering a little pay, a little pay and just like get yourself out there, get yourself infused. If you have no experience making movies, you can always be a PA. You can always be a runner. You can always be a wrangler. People are going to be so excited that you volunteered to work on their movie. They're going to teach you how to do anything that you need to know in order for them to help for you to help them, which is how I got started. Like I came out and worked for free on a short film or two and I was rolling cable in no time, you know? So like, I think that's definitely a good way to start for the second part of your question. I think it's all in your gut. It could be a day. It could be a week. It could be a month. I think like you just need to like see if you connect with this person and if there's any monetary, anything involved, then write a contract. But I feel like, you know, if you're going to go out and make a movie with somebody, you really, to really know if it's going to work or not, you have to start doing it. Like whether it's writing or planning or actually shooting, like you're not really going to know if they're a good fit for you or you're a good fit for them until you actually start participating in the making of something. So I would just go for it. And I mean, I don't think there should be any time limit on it, really. Like I think it's all up to your gut and all up to how you feel. But like, yeah, I think contracts are great. I mean, I don't necessarily know if you always have to have a contract, but maybe you probably should always have a contract if you're going into making a movie with somebody. I mean, I made a movie with a friend of mine and I didn't have a contract with him, but that's because I knew him already. So like, and I would have worked on multiple projects and he's like local actor and everything. So like, I didn't feel like it was necessary. But I think if you're going to engage in something that's bigger than a short film, like a feature, then you definitely should have a contract because there's a monetary end goal there where with a short film that doesn't really exist. But Liz, what do you think of this question? What would you do? Yeah, good answers. I think some additional resources for meeting up with people. It's like the local community college has, and I say that because it's usually a low, low cost of barrier to entry for community college classes, sometimes offers film production courses. And that's a good place to start, right? Like meetup groups. You talked about Facebook, also Twitter. You know, I have found colleagues, very specific local colleagues just by either me tweeting or having someone else tweet that I'm looking for a filmmaker in my area and then sharing what the area is, asking for people to retweet, just crowdsourcing names and building a community. My friend Michael just moved to Burlington, Vermont, and he created a Burlington, Vermont filmmakers group. So you don't have to wait to see if it exists. You can create it yourself too, right? Crowdsource, look for recommendations. Just like you said, Mandy Craigslist. I know that I don't think necessarily Lowell has 
a local film festival. If it does, I'm just not aware of it. But going to film festivals and meeting other filmmakers is really important. I'm a little bit more paranoid than Ulrich is as a person. I think this comes up a lot. <laughs> I, If I'm going to work with someone and I don't know them, I need references. Like, I need references. And maybe there's a weird power imbalance that you don't want to engage in to be like, Oh, let's work. You, let's work on this short film together. Send me three references. You don't have to phrase it like that, but you know, I think there's a world where you have multiple meetings with someone before you do anything concrete. Before you, you know, you go out for a drink, you go out for a coffee, you you have two or three times where you hang out with them, whether it's socially or professionally, before you say, "I'm in. I want to try this out with you." And then if you're hiring them always get references and always call their references and see what they have to say. I think it's just part of the no asshole policy. I'm just a little bit more paranoid in my quest to avoid assholes. But I do agree with Ulrich that your gut's going to tell you, but sometimes your gut's going to be so excited to make the movie that you're just going to skirt past any pink or red flags you see. And so that's why I'm saying slow down a little bit, slow down a little bit and just look into the character of the people you're working with. Great advice. I think I do get very excited about making movies and I do get really excited that everyone is as honest and uh, forthright as I am and that they're like in doing it for the right reasons. And that's not always the case. They're not, Arik. You know. You're unique. There are horrible people <laughs> in this world and you need to avoid them. <laughs> I definitely had some experiences where I like started collaborating with somebody on a project and then it just didn't work out. But then like, I basically just walked away from it. I was like, ah, you know, this is just not a good thing. And so, but I did, you know, spend a lot of time editing <laughs> a movie and then it was like, I didn't get anything out of it because they never, they like took my work and I was like, this is not good enough. And then they never finished it. So it's like, okay, well, fine, I guess. All right. But that was a learning lesson, right? I guess that's also... Yeah. Like, if that happens, then that's also good for you to go through. And maybe we shouldn't be dissuading someone to go through things a hard way as well. Yeah. But but don't put any capital into the relationship. Don't put any money into a relationship yeah. that's new with a stranger. I think that's smart. But you, the proverbial royal you, we, with the, everyone can send us a comment or question or something. But anyone who's listening gets in us a question, comment, or suggestion to podcast at makingmoviesishard.com. You could be a part of You're the Expert. You could be a part of the game. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like the show, you can leave us a review on iTunes. Check us out on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter at MMIH Podcast, YouTube at Making Movies is Hard Podcast. Thanks to our editor, Jeff Reimut, for doing the editing. Thanks to Robert California Jones for doing our social media. And thanks to our producer, Eric Toms, for being awesome. Thanks to all of you for listening and talk to y'all next week.